Amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Hey, uh, appreciated your shouting out our United Kids Heroes of the Week. The Dixon family, you guys are so faithful and serve uh, so selflessly, and we're grateful for you guys. In fact, I don't know if they saw that that's you, but would you mind just waving, Anna? So appreciate you. And you know what? What your life kind of testimony communicates this morning is that uh, something that's always been true and in every area of church, church is the ultimate co-op. It functions well when everybody takes ownership and shares in serving one another. It doesn't function well when it's viewed as a stage show. It's not a viable economic model for one. We can't employ enough people to do all of the things that you all do, nor does that accomplish the purpose for which Jesus created the church, right? Which is all of us serving Jesus and serving one another. United Kids, as these guys mentioned, is an especially needful area of serving because the nature of one service this year means that it's wonderful for all of us and it's more sacrificial for those who are serving our kids. And so what I'd like to ask is, can we all, especially we who are parents and who are receiving the blessing from Anna and her girls and the other United Kids stalwart heroes, having our kids trained and discipled, can we all tag into that ring and take our turn? Many hands make light work. And then rather than having to ask anyone multiple times in a row or in a month to sacrifice in that way, everybody does their part and serves one another's kids. And we all enjoy being in here. I think it would be doubly hard to have so many good vibes in here and be like 30 feet away and not experiencing them. That is part and parcel to serving Jesus. I'm not trying to deter you. It's not like, Anna, you don't know what I'm talking about. I want to just acknowledge it and ask, can we all share in that? And then on the week that's our week, get up for it. Make it special. Think, hey, we get to do this this week. Let's really bless these kids. Let's not view it as babysitting us other people's kids, so they'll babysit our kids, but we're all taking responsibility for the unreached people group that's right here under our own roof, under our own noses, and not just believing that they're going to get discipled by osmosis because they're near us when the world is discipling them six and a half days a week all day long through the little device that we stick in their hands from the earliest age. What if we are as, as intentional in discipling one another's kids and our own and then view that as something to look forward to and a joy? I hope you'll jump in with us. United Kids could use your help to make this year really work well and not benefit some of us and strain others. So all you need to do is take the connection card there in the seat in front of you. Just write United Kids or I'll help or I'm willing to talk to somebody and Pastor Lucy or one of our leaders will contact you this week. That doesn't obligate you. We'd love to talk it through. There's flexible commitment frequency. And if you've never done that before, I have led in church for more than 20 years, I've never, true confession, I've never taught a Sunday school lesson. I've never done kids. It terrifies me. If it terrifies you, it terrifies me twice as much. I'm going to do it this year. I'm making this commitment to you, Pastor Daniel, in front of all these witnesses that I'm going to tag in and take a turn like when you're preaching or someone else is and be back there because I think it's good to torture my soul. <laughs> I think it's good to rather to, uh, to try something and, and let the Lord make me strong in an area that I feel weak. All right? So 
Um, United Kids, write it on your card. We'll be in contact with you this week. Hey, how's the fast going? Is anybody hungry? Is anybody finding that to be uh, a challenge? Is anybody finding it to be wonderful? If like heaven is opening and the angels of God are descending, please let us know. We want to hear that encouraging testimony. I find that very often fasting is one of those things that I look forward to because of the spiritual benefits that I believe in and that I talk about. But then when I get started, especially at the beginning of the thing, I'm like, all that's happening is I'm hungry. Right, and then I get cranky, and then I feel like I'm wasting away because I, you know, on normal eating conditions, have like a low body fat percentile. It's just the way I'm wired, and so I think my body is starting to consume my internal organs. Woe is me! But here's the thing: Pastor Daniel was sharing this with our core team at prayer this morning. The way we work as humans is we hunger for what we feed on. Right? So if we've been feeding on fast food and then we switch to eating a healthy diet with vegetables and farm-to-table stuff, then we're not going to want it. Our body's going to fight back for a little bit. But over time, our body adjusts to the good stuff and we start finding ourselves hungering for overpriced salads with vegetables that taste like dirt. I don't know why beets do or why people like them, but they taste like dirt. I don't like food that tastes like the soil in which it grows. That's just me. I was like, I've got an idea, by the way, for a restaurant. Cisco truck to table. It's very new. It's like, it's all the rage in 2025. Get ahead of the curve. Then they take the dirt taste out of it. It's great. All right. Um, So what's my point? Stick with it. If you haven't started or you're like, I missed the boat, we got two weeks. Jump in right where you are. Find something that you can sacrifice that isn't going to compromise your health or your workout routine. And you know what? Allow that process to to happen slowly. Bank the turn so that your body starts hungering for the fullness of God's presence and his goodness. That's what happens when we discipline our flesh and say, God, I want a burger right now. Actually, I really want a burger right now, but I want you more. And then take that time, repurpose it, carve out some time to be alone with the Lord, and you'll be amazed over time at how God responds in your life. Ready to jump into the Word this morning? Me too. Father, in Jesus' name, we give our focused attention to your Word right now, and this is our worship. Amen. You know, starting this year, I was reflecting back over the last year and the last couple, as many of you, I'm sure, have done, and it seems in some ways that the year of COVID, when everything was locked down and we were at home attending incessant Zoom meetings, is is a distant thing of the past. I found myself just far enough removed from that anomalous year at this time that I was able to start remembering some of it fondly. You know, there was so much that obviously wasn't fond, not the least of which is the tragic loss of so many lives and so much um, of people's wealth, net worth, their hard work, the businesses that weren't able to make it through. And, And there's no positive spinning that. I believe God turns all these things for good and is a God of redemption. I'm just talking about the social byproduct of that time. Being cloistered at home. My college age daughter at the time, she came home and all five of us were again under one roof. We went from thinking, man, do we need all this space to, wow, we might need to put on an addition. We upped our internet plan. Did anyone else do that? And we had all these evenings to reinvest. We couldn't take kids to practice. There was no restaurant to go out to. And so we went from having to like work and fight to have family dinner together to rotating who was going to cook that night. I 
decided I was going to start, I was going to learn how to make Asian food because we love Thai food and I'd never cooked it and I'm not, I don't cook a ton anyway. So they gave me a wok for my birthday and I got a wok cookbook and I started cooking in a wok. It's very gratifying cooking in a wok, by the way. I love it. I did it last week. It stuck. We had family dinners together. We had conversations. There was one night where we were home again on a Friday evening and so we were taking turns asking the kids, what's the family activity going to be tonight? My daughter who was a dancer all through childhood, said, would you guys do this for me? I want to do a family dance. And my, my wife was like, yeah. And my boys and I were like, look at the time. I want to turn in early. But we did it. She choreographed a dance, and we all learned it. And it was hilariously awful, except for her and my wife, who were good, and the boys and I were... Actually, one of my sons was shockingly good at dancing. The other two of us <laughs> tried hard. <laughs> And they videoed it. And then there was a whole family fight about whether that could get posted and, and to whom and all that. Um, and when would you ever do that if you're us? I think what made it possible was for a year, artificially, because of external circumstances that were hard, we lived an uncrowded life. And so much fruit came of it, even with the hardship. And that's our title this morning, An Uncrowded Life. Our text is Luke chapter 8. If you look there with me, Pastor Daniel did such a great job of framing the concept of our series Simplify last week and referenced, alluded to this passage. So we're going to dive into it this morning. In verse 4, one day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him. A farmer went out to plant his seed, he said, as he scattered it across his field. Some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Other seed fell among rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. And still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as has been planted. When he said this, he called out, anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. And his disciples asked him about what the parable meant. This is sort of his seminal parable. This is the parable that introduces the former genre of parabolic, parabolic teaching, where Jesus not only teaches the parable, but kind of models what it is and uncharacteristically goes on to explain it, at least as is recorded in scriptures. He replied, you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see, and when they hear, they won't understand. This, he said, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seed on the rocky soil represented those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while and then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly. The message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. And so there are 
four soils that Jesus likens to the spiritual journey. And it's interesting to note that only one of the four fails to take root. Only one is the abject heathen. The seed falls on a hard path, never penetrates the soil, and the birds snatch it away. The other three all take root and start to grow and make a plant. You might say all encounter Jesus or extrapolate from his teaching, all get saved, right? It's what happens after that moment of inception, that moment of decision, as it were, that differentiates them. Only one of the three soils that receive the seed produce a crop that thrives. So four soils, three that germinate, one that thrives. Of course, our goal is to be the one that thrives. Jesus says elsewhere at the end of his life when he passes his message and his mission on to his followers who would succeed him, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make converts, right? That's not what he said, clearly. The so-called Great Commission elevates some of Jesus' most significant words. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, disciples at some point along the journey make a decision to follow Jesus. But where, as his followers over the succeeding millennia, we have placed disproportionate emphasis on the decision point of salvation. Jesus places disproportionate emphasis on the journey of discipleship, of which salvation decisions are one important step. And so our aim as we recalibrate at the start of 2023 is growing to maturity so that we thrive as we live with Jesus. This is what we understand that it means to be his church, and this is our way to live with Jesus, live in family, and live on mission. They're all self-predicating. In, in, in other words, the second is reliant on the first, the third on the second. Living with Jesus is the fountainhead of walking in his steps and fulfilling his purpose for our lives. And to live with Jesus is to grow to maturity so that we thrive and don't constantly struggle for survival. Last week, Pastor Daniel alluded to verse 13 in his paraphrase of this topic. The seeds on the, soil, on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but they don't have deep roots. And so they believe for a while, but they fall away when, as is inevitable in the journey of discipleship, they face temptation. And so our challenge foremost is what does it involve to grow deep roots. Well, it involves continuing to exist at a bare minimum, right? Not dying off too soon for the roots to be able to get down deep. And so the third soil. Our focus this year, as we've told you many times, is to come together and root down. Come together. Thus, we are concentrating our energy and our time together to get to know one another, to become anew his church, not those who attend a God show, but those who share life, 
who care for one another's kids, take ownership of the discipleship of the unreached people group under our noses and under our roofs before we have any business going out to our city and the frontiers of planet Earth. The community of those who share life, who lift one another up, encourage one another, challenge one another when occasion arises. And so together to root down, to do what it takes to grow deep roots in Christ. To move beyond making church attendees to making disciples. Where Jesus said, go and make disciples. And classically in the Christian community, we've misunderstood his emphasis to be go and do whatever you can do to make converts. Well, in the church context, we've done something similar, which is to say we've thought that the end, success, the grand destination is to make church attendees such that if we can get a lot of people coming to our God show and filling rooms such that we have to go farther out away from our cities, buy fields, put up big boxes, create mini stadiums, and get more people coming so that we've got ball arena-sized crowds looking at our stage show. Nothing wrong with any of that. That, however, does not equate to making disciples. Making church attendees in a post-Christian age is hard, but it's nowhere near as hard as making disciples. It's much easier, and so it's tempting for the likes of me to get a bunch of people together like we do at a Star Wars premiere when, you know, you love it that it's a packed house. You don't care about the person sitting six inches from you. I mean, you might greet them obligatorily when you sit down. If it's applicable, you might compliment their full-body Chewbacca suit. And then you sit there for three hours pretending, in effect, that they're not in your personal space. You don't come for them. You come for what's on the screen. Not so in the family of God. The main event isn't what's happening up here. I'm nothing. I'm one of you. I'm just the guy who gets to do this with my day job and can't do a lot, but I can talk a little, right? But the main event, look to your left if you would. Awkward. Look at the person sitting there. Now look to your right. That's the main event. You just saw it. It's them. They're the main event. This is what Jesus died for. This can go away. That thing can die. This place can burn down. They can make us like crazy thought. They could force us to close for a year. That doesn't touch what is sacred about Jesus' church. So our work isn't making church attendees. Our work is making disciples. The seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. These are the mature disciples. This is where we're going. Three things that he highlights. One is that they cling to it. They don't let go when times get hard or when the novelty fades. And there's patience involved. They may not see the fruit of it on week one. But make no mistake about it. Disciples are marked by their fruit. Jesus said, I have called you. I have appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. Not one bumper crop and then like call it good and, and then phone it in for the rest of your life. But to bear fruit that multiplies 10, 50, and 100-fold what was planted. To grow up 
as Paul writes it in Ephesians, in every way into Christ who is our head. That's the goal. That's the aim of discipleship, to grow up in every way into Christ who is our head. So he says that goes on, that continues. It's an ongoing process until Christ is formed in you. And so the work of making disciples over against making converts or making church attendees, the work of discipleship is often referred to as spiritual formation. And this is where that comes from. It's growing up in every way into Christ until Christ is formed in you. And you'll hear a lot about that this year. Okay, so that's where we are in space and time. Now, there's something noteworthy in this passage. Here's the obvious thing. I think no one stays immature on purpose. Nobody gets saved and then decides to settle in as a church attendee and grow merely shallow roots. Nobody's like, you know what? I just want to do this titularly or in a, enough of a veneer, like a thin veneer, but just enough so that everyone else buys it, but it doesn't really change my life. I want to fake the funk for the next 60 years. Nobody says that. They hear the message and receive it with joy. And presumably that joy parlays into intentionality or desire at least to grow into Christ. So then the question is, what happens to keep us from thriving? Verse 14 is our key verse. The seeds that fell among the thorns, they represent, Jesus says, those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out. The message is crowded out soon enough by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. Thus, simplify. Clear away the clutter in our lives so that we can grow to maturity. It's important to remember that simplicity is not an end unto itself. It's a means to another end. It's what we call a spiritual discipline. It is a process through which we arrive at the destination of mature discipleship in Christ. And so, by Jesus' metaphor, the plant is there, and it seems to want to grow. It just gets crowded out by other things that compete for the space. So the question it asks of us is, what are the thorns crowding out God's truth in your life? What are the thorns that are keeping the seed of God's word and faith from growing to maturity in you. Jesus calls them the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Cares speaks to worry, the compulsion to control more in our life. Bills, job, direction, relationship problems. These things and more crowd out the truth that God is our provider, that God knows our needs, that God has good plans for us, that God holds our future in his hands. What about riches? The cares, riches, and pleasures, Jesus says. Riches speak to the stuff 
that consumes us and the compulsion that it breeds in us, the compulsion to have more, a bigger place, a nicer car, a newer phone. And this compulsion crowds out the truth that our lives don't consist in the abundance of our possessions. Things become idols and idols enslave us. Or the pleasures Jesus speaks to. What about those? Cares, riches, and pleasures. Those are the thorns as he explains it. Pleasures speak to comfort. The compulsion to enjoy more. A bigger rush. A better restaurant. A more exotic destination. This compulsion crowds out the truth that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. And then he is capable and willing to fulfill those desires. First John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And we don't make a decision to love the world most of the time the way we make a decision to love Jesus. It just crowds out the love of Jesus and incrementally grows to dominate the garden of our hearts. Our responsibilities, our stuff and our fun activities, none of them is bad. It's just that unchecked, they tend to take over. And so here we are at the start of the year, the time that the world responds, whether they recognize God or not, to a God-installed rhythm of reevaluating, of starting fresh, of choosing new rhythms and disciplines. And our charge at the start of this year simplify, pare down, sift through, cull out, and make room for the seed of the Word of God to grow into a life of faith and discipleship. That begins practically by reevaluating your schedule. I challenge you this month to ask the question, what do I not need to be doing? What am I doing because I feel like I should or because others are? It's funny, we try so hard not to miss out on anything that if we're not careful, we end up missing out on everything. I remember last summer at one of my son's AAU basketball games, sitting with a team mom, very friendly and pleasant, and we were visiting before the second game started and asked her about, her son, and she said, um, very proud of this fact. Oh, yeah, my son plays on three different teams. I'm like, whoa, so this team, one of one for my son at that time of year, this team that has us playing six games in one weekend in Los Angeles is but one of three teams that he's on at the same time? She's like, yeah. And she's the idea was to do more was to give him the best. I felt sad for that boy. Somehow in our culture, we've made busy into a virtue. 
and we've given credence to the old cliche. The thing about the rat race, even if you win, you're still a rat (laughs) running around in a cage. So what do I not need to be doing? Simplifying continues to, from reevaluating your schedule to releasing the death grip that we maintain on our responsibilities. This doesn't necessarily speak to things that we don't need to be doing, like you need to be paying your rent or your mortgage. But the question this asks is a corollary to the verse, and that is, what do I not need to be holding quite so tightly? Jesus said, do not worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. And we're going to get into this passage more in-depthly next week. He didn't say, don't think about it. Food's not just going to magically appear and the rent fairy isn't likely to come and take care of your rent. He said, don't worry about it. Because worry doesn't add one day to your life or one dollar to your bank account. Worry is the process of trying to control in our lives that which is uncontrollable. Moreover, God didn't create us to control provision. I love your testimony, Matt, about your parents. So many of us grew up watching imperfect people that love Jesus live out a testimony like that. Thank God for that. Because what that lesson I can imagine taught them, and maybe, you know, 10-year-old you, is the mortgage doesn't get paid because I hold it with the kung fu grip, because I lie awake at night not sleeping and tossing and turning over it. It doesn't get paid because I don't trust God, who is my provision. The more energy we expend trying to control what we fundamentally cannot, the more anxiety will choke us. And that's the paradox of worry. The devil wants you to worry. Because the more you worry about things that God designed you to trust him for and not control, the more clearly you're going to see your circumstances. See, that's the irony. The more lucid becomes the reality that You can't make one hair stay in or fall out, turn gray or stay black or brown. You can't make more money appear. God designed us to look to him, walk with him, and depend on him for our provision and delight in him as we see him come through. And so... If we're not careful, we end up in this downward spiral, this do loop of anxiety. We worry about something that we simply can't control. We lack the capability of it. And then the lack of the ability to control causes our worry in a a, a perverse sense to be substantiated, right? It validates the worry. It's like, yeah, you really should be worried about that because you really don't have the goods. And so then you worry more. And then you go from not being able to sleep to needing medication to sleep because you couldn't sleep last night either. And then the thing just downward spirals. And it's no wonder we have an epidemic of anxiety to go along with our epidemic of stuff. What do I not need to be holding so tightly? 
Another practical of simplifying is to take inventory of our things. To take a simple inventory and ask what stuff, what stuff would I be freer without? I remember years and years ago, I had a friend who was the guy when we were in our early 30s that everyone wanted to be because he made good early and was, was phenomenally successful professionally and had wealth relative to the rest of us who were poor and had two little kids and suddenly um, a bunch more mouths to feed and less income to do it with. He was the guy beating the street. And so, you know, we were trying to, um, to make the, the money stretch and, and he was like buying a second house in Florida and, and, you know, a fleet of vehicles and nothing wrong with any of those things. No judgment there. But what I remember about that friendship was that every conversation, wherever it might have started, it all kind of funneled to one subject, which was just the stress of having to maintain that property. And man, I got to winterize it or there's a tornado or a whatever, a hurricane coming and I don't know what's going to happen to it and managing the fleet of vehicles and all the other stuff. And while that has a, a laughable, poor little rich girl connotation, it was very real for him, and he had no idea that the stuff appeared, and I, I don't know if this is true, but it appeared that the stuff was running his life. The one with the most stuff too often seems to live with the least peace. Why is that? In the wonderful book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster observed, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. Where planned obsolescence leaves off, psychological obsolescence takes over. In other words, if the newest update to our iPhone doesn't intentionally crash a device that still works well, such that we have to go out and buy a new one, we do that psychologically, telling our everybody else's phone is bigger, smaller, thinner, fatter, newer, or whatever than mine. We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they are worn out. It's time to awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. And the last thing that I want to share this morning that's a, a simplicity asks us to do is look at our leisure. Take a look at our recreational life and ask the question, what am I consumed by? Or alternatively, what am I escaping through? What am I using as not just a means of God's refreshing and recreation life balance, but as a means of escaping life itself? What am I consumed by or what am I escaping through? The scripture says in 2 Timothy, people in prosperous days will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The charge isn't to work only and then on our day off, sit and pray quietly all day. I mean, maybe if that's restorative for you, great. 
The charge is to rightly order our lives. And for many of us, let's just be honest. Can we have truth talk for a moment? For many of us, we live in Colorado because recreation threatens to take over. And for many of us, we might live simply enough when it comes to stuff, but we're serving something else in our ceaseless pursuit of the thrill, the buzz, the high. The American notion, the apocryphal truth of our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And listen, I like America, and I much prefer a society that in ennobles life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to any of the alternatives. I'm simply saying, this must be held distinct from a God mandate, which says, not seek first happiness, but seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, and happiness too, will be added to you. But it's by losing our lives that we find them in the kingdom of God. It's easy, though, to fall into a pattern of surfing along, isn't it, from one pleasure to the next, without noticing at all that we've become self-consumed and our lives are about nothing. To give way to the compulsion to fill our lives with empty calorie fun, like eating chips before dinner so that we're never hungry when the nourishing, nutritious, balanced meal is put on the table. And that's what awakening is about. It's about pausing, slowing down, quieting our flesh and saying, you know what, tiger, chill for three weeks. Or if you're starting today, two weeks. Because I'm going to seek God for a little bit. So you just be, you'll be all right. You're not going to die. I'm literally speaking this to my stomach. You're not going to die if you don't eat for a day. You can be okay, be okay a little uncomfortable because I'm going to seek God. I'm going to reinvest this time, this space, this care, this emotional energy in seeking God and asking Him, will you help me to simplify? To rip out the thorns that crowd out my faith. So I hope you'll join us. We're praying Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, and Sunday morning here at the church. And then you can join us in person. You can join us by fasting and then taking the time maybe that you would eat lunch at work and just getting alone in your office or in your car and spending that time listening for the voice of God. But I hope that you'll take advantage of this rhythm. That you'll lean into this time and ask God, hey, do you have more for me yet? Because I want it. Would you stand with me? We're going to respond in worship. Father, in Jesus' wonderful name, we recognize that, man, we are constantly tempted to run in this rat race. And we need your help if we're going to get out of it. So would you give us grace in these moments, in these moments of solitude, in these moments of singularity, to quiet our hearts, focus on you, and 
listen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to us now. In Jesus' name.